Well, uh, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 7. We've been looking at Mark's gospel over the past several weeks, and we're looking at it a chapter at a time. And uh, this chapter in Mark is an interesting chapter. First of all, uh, one of the things that you notice about this chapter in Mark's gospel is that there's a lot of geography. You have um, some scribes that are going to come from uh, Jerusalem up to the Galilee area, probably travel 100 miles or so um, on foot. It's not, a, it's not a quick trip when they do that sort of thing. Uh, and then Jesus, he's going to leave that area after, it, you know, it probably gets too hot after some of the things he says to the Pharisees and scribes, and he's going to travel, uh, you know, a hundred miles over to uh, this Gentile area, Tyre and Sidon. And then from there, he's going to travel all the way back over to the Decapolis. And so there's lots of geography in this chapter. Mark's putting the miles on the narrative, if you will. And in some ways, we're seeing how the gospel is going to apply in all kinds of different zip codes throughout this telling. Mark wants us to see how the gospel of Jesus is going to be applied. And more than that, what does it mean that Jesus came? So what did he come to specifically do? What will be the net effect of this um, ministry of Jesus that ultimately marks leading us to the ministry of Jesus the teaching and the miracles, all of this is leading to an arrest and a crucifixion and a burial and a resurrection, and that this he's leading us is the hope that we all have. And so, this morning there's going to be um, three very interesting interactions. He's going to interact with the scribes and Pharisees. He's going to interact with a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, and then he's going to interact with a man that's in the Decapolis who's deaf and blind. And so it, it's, um, uh, or deaf and mute. And so it's a, a interesting story. I want you to hang with me. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is how it goes. I'm going to read uh, several of the verses and then we'll come back to the rest of the story. It says this, Mark 7 verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, this is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, uh, unwashed. And then Mark, for us, us Gentile readers, he's going to help us know what the big deal was. In, in verse 3, he says, for, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless, they're, uh, unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions which they observe, such as the washing of cups and the pots and the copper vessels and the dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. 
But just by the way, that's as offensive as it sounds. Quotes Isaiah here. This people honors me with their lips, but with their heart, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is a, a gift given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and he said, Hear me all you and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when they entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not in his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declares, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for Within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Bow with me, Father, help us this morning to see your word, to hear your word, Draw us to your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first of these stories, and then there's two more that follow, but this is Jesus confronting the Pharisees and the scribes about the traditions of men and the traditions of the elders. And the issue is, is that they have come, the Pharisees, we haven't seen them since the uh, beginning of chapter 3, when they went to the Herodians and they were conspiring with them to get rid of Jesus. They were wanting to get rid of him. And so now they show up, they're bringing some of the, what the, the, the big guns, you can think of it that way, from, from Jerusalem. You got the Pharisees, these are the guys that they're going to be, you know, they're the expositors of Scripture, they're the public speakers, they're the, they're the lawyers, their deal was the oral law about how to apply the law of Moses in all your life. And the scribes, these were the guys, man, they, they, they spent their time, they studied the text, they knew all the jots and the tittles, and they, and they, cop, they were the ones that copied, they, they preserved the Old Testament in writing it down. And they knew, they knew what it said. And the problem for them is that Jesus is popular. And they've come to try to catch Jesus, to discredit him, to dishonor him. They've come, in other words, they've come to try to set a trap. And so these scribes come 100 miles 
team up with these Pharisees to set the trap. And the, in verse 3 and 4, Mark gives us the, uh, the issue, this, this tradition uh, of uh, this Jewish tradition, this tradition of the elders. And, and uh, the issue is that they were uh, hands, they were unwashed. They, they, uh, the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, or you can think of it, washing their hands properly. That's really what's at issue. It's not necessarily, I don't, I don't want you to think this is a, a hygiene issue. It's not necessarily that the disciples didn't wash their hands. They, maybe they didn't, maybe they did. But the issue was that they didn't wash their hands properly according to the ritual. This is what one writer says to help us understand it. He said, the water, this is how the ritual washing went. The, the water was poured on, on both hands, which, which must be free of anything covering them, such as gravel or mortar, etc. The hands were lifted up so as to make the water run down to the wrists in order to ensure the whole hand was washed and that the water polluted by the hand did not then run down to the fingers. And you think you've seen on TV when the surgeons scrub in, you know, I mean, they're like this, and then somebody comes in and puts the gloves on for them. Similarly, each hand was rubbed with the other fist in order to provide the hand rubbed had been effused. Otherwise, the rubbing could be done against the head or even against the wall and all these provisions, and the water had to run down to the wrists. If the water remained short of the wrists, the hands were not clean. The disciples hadn't scrubbed in for dinner. And they were watching them, taking note. And the question is about the tradition of the elders, the age-old tradition. This is how it's supposed to be done according to tradition, Jesus. Why are your disciples not following the traditions? Even though according to the Bible, this ceremonial washing was really for the priests, by this time they had extended it to everyone. In fact, Galatians 1.14, Paul tells us, he says, this is the kind of thing, these traditions, I, I was so zealous about. Paul was a, was a master of them, an expert in them. He was zealous for them when he was a Pharisee. In 6 and 7, Jesus is going to answer by quoting Isaiah 29, which just by the way, if Jesus ever answers you by quoting Isaiah you, were, you did it wrong, okay? Whatever it was. And Isaiah 29 is where Jesus is going to go. And he, he begins by calling them hypocrites. It means you, you're pretending. All you're doing here is play acting. You're wearing a mask on the outside. You're trying to project something about yourself. And the truth is you pull the mask away, and that's not who you are. You are a hypocrite. You're just like the, the people, the priests, the, the, those caught up in religion in Isaiah's day. When Isaiah, he says to them about them, you, you honor me with your lips, but your heart, which is the whole issue, your heart is far from me. 
Isaiah, he's mourning this, this loss that had taken place. you know, except for a remnant if it was ever truly there. But this loss of, of a true devotion to God. That, that their relationship with God or what they thought their relationship with God, it had, it had you know, digressed into nothing but, but rituals. It, it was misguided what they end up doing, whether this was their intention or not, is they ended up setting aside God's holy word. And instead of following this word that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and that Isaiah says it, 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 it goes out, it, what, it, what it sets out to accomplish, it will accomplish in lives. And they... they and they took that, they set this aside, and they began to build these principles, these fences, these, these outward exterior behaviors. And they began to say, you're in or you're out, you're clean or you're not. You're spiritual or you're unspiritual. Based upon a, a given set of behavioral instructions that you were to follow, and if you were a good Jew, you could spend your days, all your waking hours, going through some kind of motion that could be called tradition of the elders. They, they had become so apt at, at taking every aspect of your life, from when you ate to when you walked to when you greeted people, what you wore on certain days, what you ate on certain days. The days you fasted, the days you could eat. All of life was built around rituals for any given moment and that those rituals were the ones they said. If you, if you follow these things, these traditions, you're in. If you don't, then you're out. If, if you follow them, then you're clean. If you don't, then you're unclean. And see, what's so attractive about the tradition of the elders is the people that lived in Isaiah's day and the people that live in the first century and the people that live in our day, we all have something in common that runs deep inside all of us, and that is we all know that we're sinners. We all know that we're guilty. We have lives and consciences that betray us. We all want to do something about our guilt. And for someone to come along and to prescribe some things to do, and if you'll do this, then, then you know what, that, that kind of makes up for or, or uh, prevents, or I mean, so, so you, build a, you build this boundary, you know, make sure you don't fall into this, and then you can lay down at night and go, well, I, I didn't. I didn't cross any of the boundaries today. 
Or when you do cross a boundary, these are the things that you're supposed to do to make, and, and you think, well, okay, I did this, but, but I was able to make up for it by doing this. And then you begin to weigh your days by all the things that you're doing or not doing. This was the attraction of the tradition of the elders. This is why it started in the first place. I mean, I don't, I don't want you to think it's, you know, the, 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 this was malice aforethought on, on, a, on a part of a bunch of priests. These were men who at one point at time have a history of wanting to be spiritual, wanting to know God, wanting to know God's law, and yet not understanding fully what it meant to be in relationship with God. And they had boiled it all down or regressed it all down to a series of behaviors that you do or you don't do. Before they knew it, they'd strayed so far from the truth that they began to exploit now their traditions. They had all the right words, but they had the wrong attitudes. All the religious actions, it was clothing their worldly ideals. And then that's where you get the indictment from Jesus, because in verse 9, he goes right at him with the fifth commandment. He says, let me just give you an example, although at the end he says, there are many of these examples. The fifth commandment, you know, if you want to talk about things, this is a biggie. This is one of the ten, and I'll, I'll drop right in the middle. And the, the idea that you're to honor your father and your mother, which meant, listen, you're to care for them. Here's what you've done. You've played around with God's Word so much, and you have leaned into your tradition so much that you declare Corbin, which means all of my things I've given to God, which means I owe nothing to my parents, and you have forsaken the care and the honor of your parents, and you have continued to play around with your stuff like it's your own, calling it a gift to God. And you have to think there were some scribes or some Pharisees there that had done that exact thing. Which is why there is utter silence from them. In some ways, Jesus is saying, I know who you are. And I know what you did. And he goes right at them. Not just that, but many such things. He's going to get into some more of them a little bit later, but a few things, observations. Here's the effects of tradition. Now, I want to be careful here. Not all tradition is bad. Depends on your view of tradition and why there is tradition. At my home, one of the things, the traditions that we have is that we don't put up our Christmas tree and we don't turn on the Christmas lights until after Thanksgiving. And we don't turn them on after the 1st of January. See, I know. I, I can drive by your house and know who's clean and unclean. (laughs) 
Christmas music's for the Christmas season, not for September. I don't want the stores filled with trinkets before then. This is our tradition. We have a fun night after Thanksgiving. We put up the tree. We bake the cookies. These are traditions. We, we, we like doing these things. We, we enjoy them. They're part of the comfort of our life. They also just affirm the values that we have of spending time together, doing these things together. It doesn't mean that if your tradition is different than my tradition that you're doing it wrong. There are a lot of reasons for doing tradition. We, tradition is built in in many ways into a Sunday morning service. From how we greet each other to doing the black books and the and we sing and we pray and we and we do all of these things and, and yet we could gather and do a myriad of other things together and not be wrong. In and of these things, following these rituals, this is not worship, coming and going through the motions and making it all the way through the order of the service. This is not worship. All that we're doing, we we want to do in such a way that that sets you up to worship, but it is not worship in and of itself. That's, That's up to you. Is your heart right? Worship is not a prescribed list of behaviors. Worship is not, let me, let me d- dig in a, a little bit more because, um, and make sure you understand what I'm saying, I, that there are, there are things in which we believe if we do, we will be spiritual. And that may or may not be the case, but it has nothing to do necessarily with the things that we're doing. Listen, I if you were to ask me, hey, Ross, should I get up at 6 o'clock every morning and spend an hour reading my Bible, you would absolutely hear me say, I can't think of a better thing for you to do during the day. But you could get up at 6 o'clock every morning, read your Bible for an hour, and at the end of that time come away with, hey, you know what, I checked that off my list. I must be pretty spiritual. And that all that it has been has been an exercise of behavior. It hasn't been an opportunity for worship. That you've missed the forest of worship because you're so proud of the tree of your behavior. We do this in all kinds of ways. We, we look to things in our life, our behavior, the the, the values that we have that we've made virtues that say, because I do this, I'm good. Because I do this, I'm virtuous. Because I do this, I'm right with God. You know, it used to be, I mean, if, we're, if, I were, if this were 1988 and I were preaching this sermon, we would be right in the middle of an uncomfortable conversation about the worship wars. There would be those that say, well, no, he, you sing from hymnals. I mean, hymnals are what you sing from. That's what they're going to sing from in heaven. We might as well practice it now. And there are others that say, no way. There's going to be overhead projectors in heaven like you've never seen in your life. And that'd be the war we're having. David played stringed instruments. 
course we should have guitars. That was the fight of that day. We, we're so much more sophisticated than that today, though, right? Listen, I don't know what they are for you. They're probably less uniform than they used to be. But, but, the, but the issue comes, listen, what, what are the things that move you away from God's Word in your life? Even the good things. What are the things that hinder us from worship? I, I remember I was a pastor of a church in Wichita for a little over three years. It was a great church, and these were some of the most godly people, just wonderful um, uh, folks of a, from a very di- different generation than I had grown up in and, and from a, lived in a different time. And, and to, to a person in that congregation, their desire was to love the Lord God and to love one another as themselves. And they really, truly wanted to do that. And I remember one day I'd met uh, this barista in a Starbucks and had invited the barista to come to church and, and her and her and her husband. And so I was shocked that two weeks later they showed up on a Sunday morning to church. He, here's the deal. I had never met her husband, although I knew her. And so I, I met her at the door and then she introduced me to her husband. And I know I could have done it better, the look on my face, but I was unprepared for an 18-inch purple mohawk. I'm not against mohawks. A lot of people with mohawk are going to go to heaven. I just was unprepared for it in that moment. And if I was... You can imagine how unprepared Calvary Bible Church was. It's a difficult day of worship for everyone. So I, I don't know what it is for you, and, and it, what are the things that hinder you from worship? What, what are the obstacles to understanding? Some of these obstacles you won't know until you're in God's Word, listening to God and, and, and God's Spirit convict you of those obstacles. I mean, you have a story in Acts chapter 10 where Peter, he has just healed a lame person just like Jesus did. And he's just raised a little girl from the dead just like Jesus had done. And if you were going to say, man, Peter, at the end of Acts chapter 9, Peter has it all. I mean, he is there. He has arrived. He is full blown, all out, firing on all cylinders, spiritual Christianity, there he is. And then you open up Acts 10 and you realize while he, is, he was prepared to heal a lame person and he was prepared to raise someone from the dead, he was not at all prepared for a buffet that had pulled pork and bacon on it. And God's about to send him to the Gentiles and he cannot understand why in the world God would do such a thing. And so, Angel comes, three-part uh, three vision of a picnic table coming down out of heaven and all these things in the, in, in the, you know, that, are, that are unclean. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. 
and the vision Peter continues to hear take and eat. And he has no idea what's happening. He ends up at this guy Cornelius' house who's a God-fear who needed to hear the gospel. And, and all of these things coalesce to, to where Paul, Peter finally goes, oh, now I finally understand something I didn't know before. That God shows no partiality. In fact, that's how he begins his sermon to the Gentiles. Essentially, he says, I finally get it. I'm not better than you. There are things in our life that are obstacles. And and when Jesus says all foods are clean, there's a lot of things going on there. But in some ways, what, what he's declaring is that it is not your behavior that will save you. The The barometer of your life with Christ comes and flows from your heart. Now, notice what he says. I want you to to see a couple of things here. Um, In in verses 14 and 15, he says, hear me. I want you to hear me, and I want you to understand. He's gathered all the people around him, presumably in the earshot of the Pharisees and and the scribes. Wants them to hear. Wants them to understand. There's nothing outside in verse 15 that he's, nothing outside a person that by going into him can can defile him. It's the things that come out of a person. Those are what defile. Now, if you you skip down a a little bit uh, to verse 20, Jesus will say it again. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. But from within, verse 21, out of the heart of man. Now, he's going to list 12 things, 13 things here. Evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery. and Coveting and wickedness and deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these in one way or the other relate to the law, they also just relate to our sin nature. Essentially, you say, look, you, you can wash your hands up to the wrist. You can make sure the water that's poured on it never goes back down and reaches your fingertips, that it always, it always finds its way to the wrist. And you can have clean hands as far as you know, but what are you going to do about cleansing your heart? That's the issue. What, what do you do about the, the murder in your heart or the prejudice in your heart? How, how do you get rid of that? How do you cleanse the lustful thoughts? How do you cleanse the greed? How do you cleanse the envy? That seems to just pop up out of nowhere. Oh, we look around and we say, well, it's all the external forces, you know, that, that, are, that are preying upon me. It's, you know, it's what this other person's done or what this other person has or what this other person wears. Th- those are the things to blame. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not those things. It's all that's going on in your heart. 
said, well, then I'll, I'll rely on a bunch of external actions to make sure none of those things happen. The, 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 the doesn't, the, the, none of those things, you know, c- come in and get into my heart. And the reality is the, the external thing, you, you, you've been blaming them or you, you have set up a whole list of external things that you're trusting. And neither one of those things are working. Everything within us desires to hide what's going on inside, to dress up what's on the outside so we might appear better than we are when, in fact, you know the truth. You've been a mess for a long time. We look holy, we, we think. When we keep certain rules and we, and we, and we keep playing the game and, and we keep wearing the mask. But we expend so much energy there, we're never, never wrestling with what's going on on the inside. My desire, I, my hope, is that that you resonate, that this is uncomfortable for you. My hope is that because Jesus makes this uncomfortable for his hearers. It's like he says. I mean, you know, I like to sit there and think in my mind, I, I don't know if it's true. Maybe there were six Pharisees and six scribes. And he goes down the list of the 12 things and points at each one of them. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adult, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I, my guess is he could stand here and point them out in each one of us. So what do we do with it? It's not the things that, 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 that are going on outside here that defile you. And there may be bad things, I'm not saying that. It's what's going on. You have a heart problem, not an environment problem. You have a heart problem, not a behavior modification problem. The issue is your heart. Which is why when you read the Old Testament and you listen to the prophets, they know that a new covenant's coming, a new covenant that's going to address our hearts, hearts that need from... Deuteronomy chapter 30, to be circumcised. That's what we need. We need new hearts. We need something radical to take place in our heart. This is what Mark's getting at. And the disciples, they don't fully understand it. They're trying to get it. It's not the things on the outside. It's what's on the inside. That's what defiles you. Let me say a couple of things and then get to the end. If if for some reason I don't finish chapter 7 this morning, I'll give you a preview of it next week because I don't want you to miss the most uncomfortable conversation in all the Bible. Facing the ugly truth that you have sin in your life, that is a That's a necessary process 
that every believer must come to. Gathering as a church and calling yourself a believer is not declaring about yourself that everything is okay. Gathering at the church, declaring yourself a believer is in some ways declaring about yourself, you know what? I know everything's not okay. I need a Savior. However long I did this, I know I can't save myself. And even when I slip back into trying to save myself, I'm reminded I cannot save myself. The other is to understand, the, listen, there's a, there is a, 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 an extent, a, a depth of your depravity. That there's a, uh, uh, you know, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 7, there's this, you know, there's this battle going on inside. Paul says, listen, the things I want to do, I know those aren't the things I do. It's the things I don't want to do. I find myself doing, what a wretched man am I? What hope for deliverance is there? Paul's answer brings me to the third thing. Listen, not, not only is, is addressing and being honest with your sin head on. Secondly, understanding you have a depth of depravity. There's not anything you can do about. Thirdly, you come to Paul's answer. And that's that Jesus is the only cure for what's wrong with us. It's why he declares and Right after the passage in, in Romans 7 and Romans 8, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In Mark's gospel, he's leading us to the cross. He's, he's leading us to Jesus laying down his life, willfully offering himself up as a sacrifice, as a ransom is the language. And Mark's preparing us for that. He's leading us so that when we get there and ask, why would Jesus do that? We look back at Mark's gospel and go, okay, that's why he would do that, because we could not save ourselves. Give you a couple of cross-references. If, if we went to Zechariah chapter 3, you see this scene, and Zechariah sees it in Joshua, the high priest, is drug out into the, to the court there by uh, Satan, there, and he stands in front of God. And you notice about his, his garments, he, it's, he's filthy. He's standing there, the high priest, in garments that are filthy from head to toe. It's a representation of uncleanness and defiling, uh, being defiled and, and being sinful. One of the things that's shocking about the scene is that Joshua there in all his filth is standing before God. 
And if you know anything about it, listen, the high priest, he, he never can stand before God in all of his filth. That, that, that there was all this, uh, the, the, the ways in which he was to be cleaned, ritually cleaned and purified so that he could come and make an offering on behalf of, of all of the nation. And so for him to be standing there in all of this defilement is absolutely shocking. And yet what's more shocking that God addresses him, has those clothes removed and clothes that are white and pure and clean put on him. And in this, Zechariah is giving us a vision of a greater high priest that's going to come and make atonement, make cleansing available for us. But Paul will write, second cross, Paul is going to write to the Corinthians, a, a church that has lots of problems, it has lots of messes, and he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about him, he says, listen, don't be deceived, neither sexual immorality or idolatry or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers or swindlers, all of these things, none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul in no way, he, he, th these are bad things. Th th there's no excuse for them. He is in no way condoning some kind of licentiousness that says these things are okay for believers, and at the same time, he knows the remnants of these things live in all of them. And if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ, you would still find yourself hopelessly in that condition. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. And then he goes on to say, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is an aspect of that by faith you come, confessing your sins. It's not coming in all your vows. I'll never do this again. It's not coming in all your rituals and all the ways that you're trying to make up for what it is that you have done or trying to prevent what it is from never happening again. That it is coming and you bowing before God in all your filth and all the things that have defiled you and say, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. You said I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And I'm as in desperate need of cleansing today as in the day I was first saved. You might say with Peter and John 13, so wash all of me. And Jesus said, I only need to wash feet. I've already been cleansed. Now experience forgiveness. Experience what it is all over again today to be washed clean. I'm afraid you got traditions of Men, your own traditions, all your rituals, 
You're keeping them up. You're doing them. You're working really hard at it. Trying to appear holy, to convince yourself you're holy, trying to, trying to work so you please God, and God's real proud of you for all the stuff that you're doing, and yet the reality is you haven't stopped long enough to realize, you know, it's not all that stuff. It's what's going on right here. And have I brought, have I brought my heart, the right here heart, and bowed before the feet of Jesus, and by faith confess. Listen, you can do that this morning. Whether you've never done it before in your whole life, you can do that. Or whether, listen, this is old hat for you. You've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and yet you've just forgotten that the reality is there is sin in your life that needs to be honestly confessed to God. So that you, you can honestly experience what it is to be cleansed. Jesus wants so much more for his disciples than the motions of religion. He wants them to have hearts that are in relationship with God. Those that love the Lord God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength with the power and the enablement of God's Spirit that indwells us, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's supernatural. Some of you can't manufacture all on your own. You're in desperate need of God's help. And Jesus wants us to come and to bow right there before Him. Well, I'm going to close. I'm going to pick up next week. I want you to see the Syrophoenician woman. The... Go ahead and read it. If you've got your... Listen, pull it out this week. Read chapter 7. See if you can figure out that conversation he has with this woman about being a dog and the crumbs. And, the... and then the next one where Jesus takes and sticks his finger in a guy's ears. You're like, what? I've never heard read that. Well, read that. Mark 7. Pick up there next week and jump into Mark 8. So if you would, would you bow with me this morning? Let's pray over us today. Let's, let's ask the Lord to shake us free. Father, we do ask you that. Pray this morning that you would, by your Spirit, bring to our minds the ways in which We've, we've built some things in our life that really we're just hiding from you and hiding from each other. Father, what we need to do is set those things aside and come with voices and hearts that are honest. We'd name our sins and we'd we'd admit right, right up front, listen, we're we're unclean, we're defiled, they're not any, they're not any washing or, or stain remover to get, get it out. It's, we've been hiding behind this mask of hypocrisy, trying to make everybody think we're something that we're not, and in all truth, God, we've just been running away from you. We've been running away from your word into our ways of managing our own life. 
Don't even realize it maybe till this morning. Would you convict us of that? Would you show that to us? And Father, by your grace, would you bring us back to the foot of your son Jesus in confession? And that, and that by faith we believe that if we confess our sins, You're faithful and just to forgive those sins. And that you're the one that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Father, we don't want these things in our life. These things that come out of our heart that make us unclean, we, we're at war with those things. We, we don't want to indulge them. We, we don't want them, and yet we also realize willpower alone is not the answer. We need your strength and your power. Father, this morning that begins with confession to you. Father, I cry for your help, for the power of your spirit that indwells us. And so, Father, I pray you draw us back to your Son as our only hope. And so we pray this the only way we can. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.